Welcome to APQC Podcasts. If you like what you hear, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to APQC Podcasts on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Lauren Trees, and I'm here with APQC Chairman Carla O'Dell. And Carla and I are both deeply interested in knowledge management and in the news. And if you pay attention to the news, you notice a lot of knowledge problems that are embedded in what's going on day to day, and perhaps some untapped knowledge enabled solutions. And one story that feels like a KM story, to me at least, is the controversy that's been unfolding over the last few months around intellectual property for COVID-19 vaccines. Here in the US, we're blessed to be drowning in effective vaccines to the point where we're offering people everything from a free donut to a chance for a million dollars to get vaccinated. But that's not the case globally, and we all have to be invested in how we scale up vaccine production. It's morally important, and it's also practically important because viruses don't respect borders, and we all have to be worried about these new variants. And all these brilliant pharmaceutical companies have patents on their vaccines, and patents are critical to incentivizing R&D and moving innovation around the world. But you also do have a set of experts that are calling for some kind of patent waiver in this situation. And the details of what different groups are proposing differ, but the basic argument is that the nature of this crisis means that you have to just override intellectual property protection in order to scale up production and make the largest amount of vaccine possible in the global market. And I'm not suggesting that Carla and I advocate this debate. We have members in the pharmaceutical industry. We have members in global uh, health advocacy. We love them all equally. What I wanna talk about is the tactical problem that's embedded here in this controversy. Because even if you figured out a waiver, an exemption, compensation that everybody in this situation could agree to, and you put these mRNA patents on the internet, it's not like vaccine factories could just start making them. It's not like a chocolate chip cookie recipe. There's a ton of knowledge you need around the science, around the manufacturing, the, the know-how and show-how, if you will, to do this correctly. And with life-saving vaccines, you really want to get it right. So this is clearly a KM problem. If you're a knowledge manager, you see it that way. And I'm interested in the implications both for individual companies and for, for the global economy. And the interesting thing to me about this knowledge is that a lot of it is tacit. Um, but, but for those of you who have not drunk the knowledge management Kool-Aid, you may be wondering what we mean by that. So Carla, I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about the different types of knowledge and unpack that a little bit. Um, I'd love to, Lauren, you know, whether you're in supply chain or finance and accounting or you're in charge of process improvement or knowledge management, you're going to find that in order for something to get accomplished, a process to actually be executed, in this case, we're using our example as uh, the manufacturing and production and distribution of vaccine, you got four kinds of knowledge you're going to need. And if any one of those is missing, you have a rather unstable table. You can do it with three legs, but it's gonna be uh, not as strong as four. So first, the first kind that everybody's familiar with, and here's the language, here's the internal language people use in the knowledge game about this, is the first is explicit. That's if you're talking about a process, explicit knowledge is anything you can write down, it's formulas, it's flow charts, it's uh, who's on you know the names and addresses of all the people involved, 
it's knowledge that can be documented. And that's what content management systems are so good at. And once you can get it documented and if you can get people to access it. So that's what explicit knowledge is. Some people think that's all there is to it, which is why we've seen so many horrendous failures in the early days of knowledge management with just technology because they thought that was all there was. Oops, that's, that table will not stand on one leg. The second leg is what we call tacit knowledge. And tacit knowledge is the um, knowledge that you have in your head about how to do something. It's if, if the uh, explicit knowledge is the know what, this is the know how. The ability to ride the bike is not the same as reading the book about riding the bike or playing tennis. And so the ability to execute and get things done comes out of experience. But that leads us to the, and that's the kind of thing where you need actual interaction with human beings. We love to say that experts, for example, uh, you can ask them to write a lot of stuff down, but they don't know what they know until you ask them, until you give them a problem and you ask them. And when you do, then they go, oh, well, here's what, you know, what we learned. And Lauren's going to talk about that some more later. But on the experiential side, it's, it's the experience that people have had doing a process, which not just skills them, but it also imbues them with kind of legacy of, of uh, beliefs and biases, some of which are accurate and some of which are not, but give them a lot of street creds because they've actually had the experience. And you do need that. You need people who've been through it. And then, the, so we've got tacit, we've got explicit, we've got experiential. The fourth one, is, is really fun in an organization. It's called deep knowledge. And it's you can think of it sort of as the know who. Uh, how do you actually get things done in APQC? Who's, who's has the strokes? Who's got the power to execute? Who knows where we can find out how to get this invoice processed? How about this um, particular customer? What do we know about that person? So there's some deep knowledge, it's relationships. When you're talking about distribution and supply chains, you're talking about relationships with suppliers, uh, relationships with customers, kind of deep knowledge uh, about what, what makes them tick. So tacit, explicit, experiential, and deep knowledge are all extremely helpful in a complex process like vaccine manufacturing and distribution. And in this particular scenario, it's really interesting because the explicit knowledge, not just what's in the patent, but everything that's documented around, uh, you know, the process of making the vaccine and what's required to, to make it happen could maybe pa be passed off in a document or a uh, giant database of documents to someone. The tacit knowledge is really gonna come from the team that developed it and has manufactured it. And then if you're passing it off, you probably also need some deep knowledge of people who have experience in the organization, the facility that's gonna be manufacturing it. So you need all of those different pieces to come together, I think, in this scenario to, to make it happen efficiently and effectively. Mm -hmm. And one thing I think people forget, and you'll talk about it, Lauren, is that when they form a team, they need to think not just about who has the scientific knowledge in various domains, but who has this, uh, these other pieces of knowledge, including deep knowledge. Absolutely. So Carla and I thought it would be fun if to talk about if the world put the two of us in charge of transferring this kind of knowledge to scale up global vaccine production. This seems relatively unlikely to me, but we're going to pose it as a <laughs> hypothetical. What tools and approaches would we look to and, and how would we apply them and maybe what pitfalls would we want to avoid? 
And when we think about classic knowledge transfer from experts to recipients who need that knowledge, um, there, there's two things that come to mind to me. The, the first is some sort of interview process um, where you're, you're taking tacit knowledge and, and pulling it out of experts' heads. And this can be used to train others who sit in directly on the interviews, and it can also be used to create documentation, written documentation, mind maps, videos, all sorts of stuff that can then be used to, to train and teach others and transfer that knowledge. I think there are a couple of uh, critical success factors for an interview process. It won't work if you don't ask the right questions the right way, and mm -hmm. that requires great facilitation skills. I mean, what have we learned? It's like you can't have another expert do the interview because they know too much, and so they skip things and you don't get all the information. But neither could Carla or I, no matter how great a facilitator we are, go in and interview these experts because we'd be asking dumb questions. So you need somebody with the right amount of technical knowledge to pull out the expertise in the right way, in addition to those facilitators skills. So it's, it's a really sweet spot of capabilities and competencies that you need to do this right. And the other thing that you really need is you need some buy-in from the experts that you're going to be interviewing. Carla and I have both gone through projects like this, and if the experts aren't on board, if their managers aren't on board, if they're kind of he headed for the door, don't see the value in it, then it's really hard to get what you need. Um, yeah. And even with all of that, it's really hard to get people to filter out what's relevant and, and um, capture the right knowledge with that. It's like the Goldilocks approach, not too much, not too little. You, you just need that, that just that right amount. And um, it's a great approach, but it's, it's not easy to get right. Yeah, uh, just to add on to that, Lauren, one of the benefits is that if you can get people launched with enough information, that's Goldilocks amount, they can start using it, which you're going to talk about in a minute. And then they also by then have some relationship with the uh, expert and can go back and get more information. And then the second kind of classic approach that we think about is, is some form of teaching, whether you have an expert delivering a masterclass, a webinar, a lunch and learn, maybe even some mentoring. And, and that really has the immediacy of the person-to-person -person transfer, which is great. Um, and, and it allows the information to be packaged as learning, which I think is really helpful, as opposed to somebody just reading off everything they know and creating a 100-page document or an eight-hour video. Um, but we also know you were talking about um, putting the right team together and people who have the right skills and knowledge. Um, a lot of experts are not great teachers, and I think that that's the biggest challenge with the, uh, the learning approach. And so you have to you have to train them and sometimes you have to pull that out of them. And even if you do that, um, sometimes it's it's really challenging. <laughs> Um, the most obvious way to transfer some of this deep tacit knowledge, especially about a really complex manufacturing process, is some kind of observational approach, whether it's job shadowing, something where you can really sit side by side with people. Um, and, and that is going to get you a lot of the tacit knowledge that you need and maybe some of that deep knowledge as well. But it's also the hardest to pull off because people need significant amounts of, of, of time together. So 
we were talking earlier about having an intentional approach. I think picking the people and the opportunities for that really wisely is important. Yeah. And then the final approach that I was thinking about uh, here is around um, the capture and transfer of lessons learned, best practices, that kind of experience-based knowledge. And what's interesting is I think that if you do a after action approach, a lessons learned approach well, that can help fill in for some of that job shadowing that maybe you're not able to do in a global economy and things like that, because people find out what works, what doesn't. And if you're able to curate and document that and make that available to people, then that, that can serve as a proxy for some of that hands-on training. All right. I think, um We've talked about so many different kinds of knowledge and ways to transfer it. So a couple of points just to add to it before we go to the, the last one. It's, it's actually a setup for you on the on the last one, Lauren, is that um, it can be overwhelming to people. Uh, number one is the amount of kinds of knowledge there is. So beginning with a process orientation, which is what are the key stages and phases and, and, and uh, steps of this process we're trying to create? What's our end goal? All of the kind of really effective project team management skills are really important. Um, another one is to be sure to have a team space where people can go and find the experts, find the content, you've got a homeroom. And now that we've done this all virtually, uh, exclusively for a while, we can understand how that can be done. You're gonna, and you can talk some more about other technologies that can help us here. Um, having the process as your scaffolding, as your framework, again, helps with the lessons learned. That the general lessons learned are not as helpful as they are at a very moment in time or a step in the process. And that's part of the elicitation from experts as well. When you got here, what did you learn that you would want people to know before they tried to get where you are? So that helps with the lessons learned. And, um, and, and then I think, so people want to learn just in time. So that's why the team space is so important. If you've got that there, when they get to that point, you know, it's the, uh, what do we call it? Anticipated knowledge delivery. Um, kind of anticipate what people are going to need at certain points in time. All of this requires a real foundational kind of technology, though. And Lauren, I think you are expert on that. Absolutely. And when you were talking, one of the things that I was jotting down for myself is it all depends. I feel like there are a lot of great approaches out there that you can do this with. You really have to talk to your stakeholders, look at the situation. And, and part of the uh, foundational factors that you look at is what technology you have in place and what technology you have available. And the exciting thing for us as knowledge management people is the technology is getting really good. And you mm -hmm. can do some things that you just absolutely could not do even three to five years ago. Um, you know, and even at that basic level, collaborative team sites are mean that a lot of this knowledge is getting documented, um, you know, and you can use things like machine learning and AI to sift through some of that digital dust, digital detritus from the project and pick out some patterns and key insights and things like that, that you may be able to leverage for knowledge transfer. What, what happened in this six months of us sitting in this Microsoft Teams site that's really important to pass on to the next stage of the project or somebody who wants to replicate our results? And that mm -hmm. has always been, um, you know, one of the holy grails 
of knowledge management and has usually just involved a ton of manual curation and even then is really difficult. So I think that's one of the, the promises of technology. I don't know if we're quite there yet, but we're moving there very quickly. And then the other thing that I've been thinking about is um, how quickly we're moving on things like virtual and augmented reality. Because when we think about things like masterclasses and job shadowing, and especially in the age of COVID, where even if you could get people together, you can't because of social distancing restrictions, um, it, it's really powerful to be able to put people into the same kind of virtual reality environment or also to use experts to design a virtual reality environment that can then be used to train novices and experts to do that kind of work and where they can get real-time feedback from the program. So I, I think there's a lot of potential there as we think about observational and on-the-job training, especially for things that are dangerous or that we really want people to get right. It's like um, pilot simulations for scientists or, or other kinds of jobs that haven't normally had that kind of thing. So, so those are the things that I'm really excited about in terms of the technology and, and just the speed at which it's moving. You bring up a great point when you talk about virtual reality and the, there's nothing like actually being there and experiencing it. You think something's going to work. If anybody has ever redesigned their kitchen or done any upgrades in their house, you know this, that until you actually see it and get it in place, you go, oh, darn, <laughs> That's, we can't get through the door. Okay. So having a virtual reality really, really can help with that. And it's kind of like the new age version of, of uh, prototyping because prototyping is probably the most powerful, you know, the, the minimally vi uh, minimal viable product, prototyping, all really fabulous ways uh, for people to learn. Talking about learning, we've been touching on some of the, the topics um, or the approaches. If the listeners who want a deep dive, you and Mercy and the rest of the team have done a fabulous job of documenting the best practices, the approaches for everything from lessons learned to team spaces to, uh, the new technologies. So, you know, there, there are resources for really getting deep into this. I think that's a perfect place to leave it. Thank you so much for joining us for this APQC podcast. And please go to apqc.org to learn more about APQC, about tacit knowledge, and all the techniques and approaches that we talked about today. <laughs>